0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today I'm joined by my faithful co-host, Dale Stenberg, and the two of us have the very special privilege of talking with Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, I first discovered the work of Dr. Heiser a few years back when I was looking for material on the Old Testament backdrop to New Testament Trinitarian theology. And while we probably won't get into this today. I will link an excellent seminar that Dr. Heiser gave on this subject in the comments. In any case, I have since discovered a pile of Dr. Heiser's other books, including uh, The Unseen Realm, Reversing Herman, Angels, and then most recently, his his work Demons. Here's the pile of books here. They're all very good and I highly recommend each of them. Uh, And I could go on forever about all that I've learned from them, but the goal today is to let Dr. Heiser speak for himself. So, that uh, our other readers can be made aware of his overall project. One, one other preliminary that is worth noting is that uh, Dr. Heiser wears at least two scholarly hats. On the one hand, he's a biblical scholar combining an unusual knowledge of both ancient Near Eastern and Second Temple thought. But on the other hand, he is an analyst and debunker of various fringe, theory, fringe theories about the paranormal. Uh, his secondary podcast, Fringe Pop 321, is a veritable feast of such analyses. Uh, and so, because UFOs are obviously more interesting than anything else, I think <laughs> we'll start there. Uh, okay. <laughs> one of one of the things I, I've really please enjoyed about...
1: Please don't ask me about Ezekiel 1.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the wheels in the wheels. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> one, one of the things I've really enjoyed, Dr. Heiser, about Fringe Pop is that you're you're, you're clearly not inclined to enter any internet conspiracy theorizing, but, uh, yeah. but you're honest enough to note that when there are aspects of reality that are stranger than we might want to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe just as kind of a fun icebreaker here, uh, you know, there's a lot of scholarship, even in the academic community, as it turns out, on UFO encounters and, and particularly abductions and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and you've kept up with this literature. Can you, can you briefly explain for the uh, people who are interested in UFOs, everybody, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> what the most plausible hypotheses are concerning UFO encounters, and what, where you think, even though you're not dogmatic about this, mm-hmm. I understand, but where you think supernatural explanations could even potentially be useful? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the, your listeners should know if they're interested in UFO stuff, that a lot of people who are into UFO studies, I'm talking about serious people, they hate the abduction thing. (laughs) Okay. They, this, this is actually within the community. There's a, a a pretty firm line drawn by a number of people. Uh, Because you have people who are, you, you got your science types, you know, wow, if that's tech, if that technology is real, I, I want to know how it works. Then you've got your, your let's militarize everything types. Mm. Okay. Hey, if that technology is real, I want to weaponize it and kill our enemies, you know, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. And you know, so you have those groups, you have the disclosure people who, who basically have followed the, and it's a real thing. Uh, the, the demonstrable paper trail from the fifties. Where the one on the one hand the government's ah there's nothing going on here we're not interested who cares this is you know hit the snooze button for me and then on the other hand it's like holy cow what in the world is this stuff right (laughs) yeah actually I mean you you know people have spent decades now with Freedom of Information Act and ferreted out this duality okay within our own government so there are people who are into this because they want disclosure okay so none of this has anything to do with abduction stuff okay. Abduction stuff is, is typically um, a, a religious thing, okay? Let's just use as broad terminology as, as we can here. It's, it's very interesting when you get in the literature that it overwhelmingly is cast as, as a positive sort of shamanistic religious experience, either that we're so special that they came to us and abducted us and gave us, you know, okay, the medical exam was horrific, but, you know, they gave us this special message for the rest of the world, and, and we're part of the trajectory of human evolution to become like gods. And, you know, we need, they're using us to save ourselves from ourselves. And, you know, it, it's this kind of stuff over and over and over again. So since it's in the religious sphere, a lot of those people in the other groups, they just don't want to hear about it. Plus, the, they just think it makes their pursuit, the general pursuit of finding out if, if there's extraterrestrial life, they think it, it makes them look goofy. So they just, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, if you let's just talk about in the abduction sphere, I think you can put this into a few buckets. One bucket is, you know, I, I was watching you know, a, a, a movie or a TV show before I went to bed. And, and then I had an abduction experience. And, and wow, you know, I'm, I'm one of the elect now. Right? You know, in other words, it's just pure fantasy. Okay. It's just, it's just, you know, a vestigial brain activity. The another bucket, and th- this I think is the biggest one. I think um, what what sleep specialists call sleep paralysis, I think in large part, Um, accounts for these experiences this is a very old phenomenon it's been reproduced in laboratory conditions it does have you know it's usually it's usually when when you when you read about in the literature it's usually like you know there was this old hag at the at the foot of my bed or sitting on top of my chest or this demonic being or or whatever. And, and now it's like the alien, you know, harvesting, you know, sexual material from me and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the, you can read about this stuff all the way back into the Middle Ages, you know, the early church fathers, I mean, it, it, it's there it is. But sleep paralysis tends to, to operate along very discernible patterns. And, and the imagery and the patterns changes based on cultural conditions and cultural items and awareness. So I I tend to think this is the this is the biggest bucket and it there's there there are technical reasons technical explanations behind sleep paralysis including the imagery people can go up and list we did an episode of this on I have another podcast called Peer Anormal. we've only done mm. about 15 20 episodes and this was one of them you know we we go into the peer reviewed literature on, on a paranormal subject and talk about the literature mm. so that's the biggest bucket i do think though that as a supernaturalist, you know, those of us who, you know, embrace a supernatural worldview, I do leave a bucket open for demonization. Mm. And and for me, the thing that, that would take the experience away from, you know, some of these other buckets into that category is messaging, right? Messaging is really important Uh, before the abduction era. Okay. If we want to call it that, give it a historical era. and, And a lot of people do. Um, that there was there was the contact tea era, and, and the messaging is, is very stilted, you know it, it's never, you know appearing as Muhammad, or Buddha, right, or you know you, you get these alternate Jesus's, you you know this 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 notion of Jesus was one of us, you know he, he's an extraterrestrial, and we're here, you know basically it's a redefinition of Christology, it's a redefinition mm-hmm. of salvation. It's a redefinition of, of the image of God. I mean, all these important, you know, biblical theological concepts. If you read the contactee literature, it's, it's just very stilted uh, toward being what I would call an anti-Christian message. And so to me, that's very suspicious. It would be different if it was, you, if it was just across the board. Oh, like today we're going to appear as you know, the Rosicrucian masters and pick on them, you know, in their theology. No, it, it's, always, it's always Christ. It's always something Christian, and and I, I I don't think that that can be overlooked. Yeah. Now I'm not the only one. I'm not I'm not the guy who's the, the the Christian fundamentalist, you know, strumming the the one string banjo here. Sure, you have guys like like John Keel, and I think to a lesser extent Jacques Vallee, who was the he's he's a he's in the U.S. but he's he's French, but he's the guy that. Um, if you've ever seen Close Encounters, the French ufologist is patterned after Valet. He's, he's sort of the template for that. But they will both assign, and they'll, they'll use small d demonic intelligences to a lot of this stuff. But they won't do theology with it, but they will use that term to basically make the point that this is, this is spiritual in, in its nature, a lot of it, and it isn't good. Mm. Um, so they'll they'll take a they'll operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion on it even as secularists. So that, yeah. that has a long history.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting way to start our larger conversation because the the plausibility of one's claims here have something to do with you know prior assumptions. You know the way you framed it as yeah. sort of as You're, a supernaturalist. This is a an available yeah. kind of an go ahead. Before before we leave this, your audience should know
1: that this is it's never gone away. So I can't use the word revival, but the positive turning, turning the the messaging of the contact team movement and the abduction stuff on its head and making it a positive, uh, message of spirituality that is getting ramped up within academia.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay. The major figure here is Jeffrey Kripal, K-R-I-P-A-L. He teaches at Rice University. He's a professor of comparative religions and things like that. But he has partnered with Whitley Strieber now for two, I think it's two, it might be three, but two books. If Whitley Strieber, is, is that ringing a bell for either of you guys? No. Okay, if you go to the supermarket or use book sale, you're going to see Strieber's book sitting on a table somewhere. Okay. It, okay. It's the Alien Face Communion. Yeah. Okay, this is the guy that, you know, went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson about how he was abducted by aliens. He was a fiction writer, I guess he still is. But he, uh, he, he's written, you know, a dozen or so books about his experiences. And he is now real tight with to to articulate a new spirituality for the coming 20 for the rest of the 21st century. And it's all of
2: this stuff interesting that is interesting real quick joe before um we get to this second question um are you encountering uh because this is your i mean you're you're in this these communities and these circles i'm just not Mm -hmm. um but are you hearing anything uh in terms of the use of psychedelics and a movement toward like young is really big right now especially with the rise of jordan peterson yeah um like and i think that some some pockets anyway that i've encountered they they link the use of particular psychedelics to tap into the universal consciousness of humanity and that's really the function of aliens right Um, they're trying to communicate to us something about the nature of another realm and Mm -hmm. uh, what once we elevate our consciousness to that realm we all dissolve our egos and humanity can live in one big sort of you know jolly communion with one another i'm I'm curious have you heard about any of this or is this making its way into the more academic circles
1: well i I don't i'm I'm pausing on the academic part i would say yes it is through cripple to but but not in a it's not a torrent it's a trickle right now the drug part right if you go out uh, to the next layer of of what I'll you know what I'll call the the non-peer-reviewed best-selling author category. Mm. Okay, Graham Hancock has a book called The Divine Spark. Uh, it's a Hancock reader. It, it, it's based upon an earlier book that he he wrote about this very topic and his own experimentation with psychedelics and whatnot. Uh, Joe Rogan has had him on a couple times. Mm uh it this this is part of the picture um certainly because you know supposedly this is consciousness altering right and that allows you to be open to and and you know the mythology is to control the encounter Well, first of all we don't even know if it is an encounter because if it's all happening in your head you're not encountering anything okay right right right. Right. but you know but but it's this notion of of this is a means of communication with with Other beings in the conscious universe, and that's the same thing as you get in the contactee literature. and And Hancock is very aware of this overlap, and and is not afraid to uh, to inject the 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 drug issue into that world and and vice versa. So, in in terms of that world, you know, authors that have a a very large following, you know, and that, you know, can get on on these shows like Rogan show. Yeah, yeah, it's not new. Right. It, it kind of goes it, it used to be terence mckenna
0: yeah right? yeah
1: but, but so now it's it's hancock and a few other people you know who are sort of following in hancock's train um to do this but it yeah it's out there and through Cripel, um his academic credentials sort of and he knows this and he's fine with it le- legitimize mm. um these they, they they legitim it legitimizes the discussion right yeah he, he would be he would be fine with saying that, uh, but he's a Gnostic. Crepel's basically a Gnostic. I mean, he's very right. very friendly to Gnosticism, um, and, and that's when 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 we're at AAR. I mean, I've you know I, I assume you guys go to AAR, or SBL, or whatever. You know, will, you know will speak there pretty much every year in April deconic you know in, in the Gnostic sections and and whatnot. But but Crepel's now is he's expanding his horizons, hmm. and uh, you know, along with Whitley, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, you know, as I was saying earlier, in some ways, you know, the plausibility of which buckets we're going to put these things into depend mm-hmm. upon some prior assumptions. And sure. and, when, and when part of what your whole biblical project has largely been about is helping persons kind of re-enter the minds of the original biblical readers and hearers, probably more hearers for most of them. Um, if you could distill, and now I'm kind of thinking big project Michael Heiser, and then we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit more narrowly about demons in a second. But if you could distill kind of the most basic ideas that you think the original audience had that we need to recover when we encounter scripture, what would what would that be, or, or another way of saying that is what are the most general things that we've kind of unlearned that in your judgment, we kind of need to relearn mm-hmm. to re-enter the world of scripture and 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 sort of grab it the way yeah. the audience was grabbing it?
1: Well, in, in the most general language, I would say we need, we need a re-enchanted view of scripture. And that yeah. is, we need to be like the biblical author was, predisposed to an animate, active, supernatural world. Uh, and we, we might think we are right now, but we're not. You know, most, you know, serious Bible believers are not. And I'm not talking about, hey, let's do the wacky charismania thing. I'm not a charismatic. And I'll confess, I have a pretty low view of of what we would call charismania.
2: Hmm. I
1: think a lot because and part of it is because I I have read so much in the paranormal stuff. Um, I know that basically any of the, the things that you see at one of these signs and wonders, holy laughter, this and that kind of thing you can find in you know other religions and paganism right i know that absolutely yeah but the question is how is that it certainly ain't the holy spirit so you got two other options it's either self-contrived or it's demonic okay right. take your pick you know and, and neither of them are very good so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not impressed with any of that
2: yeah
1: and but but at the same time what I want people to, to reconsider is that the biblical writers, you know, you might want to sit down if you're driving now, so you don't drive off the road. Here. <laughs> okay? The biblical writers were not us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we're not them. Right. You know, and, and, and so in the most general terms, this is why I like to say, when you read the old Testament, I want the literate old Testament person living in your head rent free And when you read the New Testament, I want the first century Jew, again, someone who had a knowledge of their Old Testament and, and, you know, the the literary discourse of the day. I want that person living in your head when you read the New Testament, because biblical writers read books. They weren't us. They were very predisposed to a supernatural worldview. And now, you know, we are selectively supernatural. You know, everybody who's listening to this, you know, mostly everybody is going to affirm, you know, the Trinity, and of course, you know, you have to affirm theism first, but the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and the whole concept that, a, a, you know, Jesus dying on the cross somehow takes away sin and sets up a, a heavenly kingdom at the ascension. We, we believe all this stuff, all right. But then as soon as you go to, you know, some of these weird passages in, in, the, in the Bible, Genesis 6, all right, is, is sort of the classic test case, you know, or, you know, just some of the like exorcisms or, or whatever. Oh, I don't know about that. You know, maybe, maybe that guy just needs to take a pill. You know, I, right. you know, in other words, our reflex for a lot of these things is not supernaturalism. Even when it comes to gifting, I mean, I'm not a charismatic, I would be in what what would be called in academia, the cautious but open bucket. Okay. Right. Yeah. In other words, I'm, I'm willing to believe anything, but I'm skeptical of everything. Yeah. And, I, and I can't help myself in, in, in either respect. So what I want is I want, I'm concerned with messaging. I'm concerned with context. I'm concerned. Does it bear fruit or not? Okay. Cause you, you know, you, you can fool some of the people a lot of the time when they're seeing something bizarre, but down the road, they're, it's, it's going to show. Sure. You know, so this is what I'm concerned about. And I, I think we are actually selectively supernatural and we don't, we, we, We turn away from some of these passages that we quote unquote can't explain. Hmm. Mike, how do you explain Genesis six? How does it work when sons of God and daughters of women and the Nephilim and how does that work? I don't know. Right. Uh, How does the deity of Christ work? How does the hypostatic union work? How does the Trinity work? How does salvation work? Okay. How does any of this work? Okay. Because the work question is about, science, you know like, like methodology, right? Something material. Well again, I've got news for you, Christian. Nothing you believe works Yeah, <laughs> right. in that sphere. So right. let's own it and you know ask ourselves a different question. Are these ideas coherent in the wake of theism as the Bible articulates it? Yeah, is mm-hmm. God capable? of creating beings who can do this, or you know, this, is he, is he, or is he not?
0: Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated, in fact, in the unseen realm is when you, and we'll talk about the the book Demons in just a second, but when you actually get into your material on Genesis six and then then get into the, how does this all work question? uh, And I think this is fairly characteristic of your answer to such questions is, well, here's three options, pick one, (laughs) you know, it's sort of like,
1: be like, warmed and filled, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, right, right, right.
0: I mean, like, in other words, it's not about the, the kind of the mechanics of exactly how this went down. It's the it's the relationships between all of these things that the biblical author is actually after. Yeah. You know, it's and giving when, us a...
1: When it comes to Genesis 6, again, to me, that this is the classic context question. And, and I, I can't be too hard on people because, look, I, I have my, only myself to blame, and, I, and I'm in, in the same bucket. As, as most people listening to the sound of my voice now. But I'm at the point now where it's like, look, if you want to defend the Sethite view, again, you know, that the sons of God here are just men, even though sons of God everywhere else is supernatural beings, even though Peter refers to this episode as the angels that sinned, if you want to still insist that they're just guys, okay, from the line of Seth, well, I mean, there's there's no cosmic law that's going to put you in, you know, you know, co- cosmic jail for that, but I don't ever want to hear you again talk about interpreting the Bible in context. Right. Because the reality is, the context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4, 1 through 5, really, is the Mesopotamian Upkalu story. You know, and, I, and in the book, I, give the, I direct people to the work of Amar Anus, who accounts in the cuneiform flood literature for every point of Genesis 6, 1 through 5, and looping in verse 5 is important because it also accounts for the material in the Enochian and the Second Temple literature. And they were aware of the Mesopotamian stuff because there's connections between the two. And that's what Peter read and quoted. Okay, the context trail is discernible. It's discoverable. It, right there it is. But I, I, you know, I didn't know any of that until hmm. 2010 when Anus publishes this stuff. You know, I, I didn't know that because and I looked it up afterwards, Apkalu, because I, I worked at Lagos and I get all their books for free. Right. So I have all the commentaries in the world, you know. So, uh, you know, Apkalu, I found two commentaries that even mention the term. Hmm. Interesting. I found one journal article that, that that actually does something with it. The commentaries just mention the term. They don't do anything with it. I found one journal article by Ann Kilmer, who, who talks a little bit about it. And then there's one book prior to you know, work, and that's by Helga Kvonvig, which is a Brill title, which you got to take out a house loan you know, to buy the thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it's like, this is completely cut off, but after 2010, you have no excuse anymore. Mm. So if you're, if you're, Mike, you're wrong. My commentary doesn't say that. Well, check the date, okay? If it's after Anas' work and they don't interact with it, shame on the author. If it's before honest's work, it's by definition obsolete. So, I just don't want to hear it anymore.
2: Right. Yeah, you know, I what, really don't. You know, one of the things I think you're just say, when you go to in, like in a, a reformed seminary, um, <clears throat> what they teach you when you take hermeneutics is the grammatical historical yep. interpretation method. Uh, this is where you're trying to understand the point that the author is making to it their immediate audience. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading Demons, and this is sort of what you're getting at when you talk about Genesis 6 and context and the biblical theological data points that support your interpretation of a supernatural reading. Um, it when I, When I read your book, it seemed like, well, he's just employing sound hermeneutical principles in order to derive his conclusions. Now he is going outside of um, the, you know, immediate um, scriptural witness to pull from uh, the surrounding literature that was available to the people that uh, Genesis 6 would have been available to at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So in just a uh, very sort of entry level hermeneutical methodology. It seems like you're doing that, and you're doing it in in ways that, like you're saying, not a lot of other people are doing. And that to me raises a lot of red flags. Like, why aren't other people interacting with this stuff, and why are they afraid? You, uh, I, I think there's. I think there's. I th- well, you, you use the word
1: afraid. I think that's one of several reasons. Um, because it's one thing to go into the context and talk about geography. Oh, look at the clothing they wore. Ooh, they used pots and lamps, okay? Right. You know, oh, you know, this is, this is the historical time period. Okay, that, and that's all important, but that's, that's a lot different than saying, look at these elements of shared worldview, mm. okay? Because we're, we're, the way we're taught to think about scripture is that, well, it, nobody else could think these thoughts because they're in the Bible. And the is the word of God. So nobody else can be thinking these thoughts. Okay, that is so misguided. I mean, we could spend yeah. hours on how misguided that is yeah. because God used people. Yes, mm-hmm. He used people to write the scriptures. Okay, the scriptures are inspired. The Bible is the word of God. It doesn't contain the word of God. Okay, we're not trying to be slick here and be neo-orthodox, all right? right. It is the word of God. And Bible used people to communicate messages using whatever abilities they had. He doesn't change them. Well, I, I'd love to have you write Genesis, but first I need to make you 21st century man. Right, no, he doesn't right. do that, okay? And, and you know, the, the biblical writers were literate. They were highly skilled. They read a lot of things. They were familiar with how you write a covenant. Yeah, I went but, to law school, you know, I read cuneiform covenants, I mean, I, I know what these are supposed to look like, right? You know, they, they, they're skilled, they're not just dragged in off the street, God has a job for you, can you write a few words? No, I mean, they know what they're doing. And so this is my insistence, look, let the Bible just be what it is.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, Okay. just let it be what it is. And, and, and let the let the writers communicate what they were trying to communicate, because I got news for you, they're writing to people alive when they were, and they weren't you. Yeah. Now it's for our benefit. Okay. That's absolutely true. But, but when we talk about interpreting in context, and we try to use the tools, you know, the grammatical, historical method, we should not avoid getting into things like worldview. Okay. The, the intellectual, you know, I'll try to sound like a scholar here, the cognitive environment, you know, of the biblical writers. We should not, we have nothing to fear, okay? Because these are God's decisions to use these people alive at this time. They knew what they were doing. God made good choices. He didn't pick hacks, all right? They knew what they were doing. And when they interact with both the worldview and the literature of their day, they'll bring it in to their writings a lot. They'll they'll follow patterns, they'll they'll take pieces of it and then they'll just start set it up and start shooting at it, you know, to, as a polemic. I mean, they assume that their readers can pick up what they're laying down. Right. They, yeah. that, that, that their readers are going to know what they're what they're drawing in and why they're doing it. Hmm. Now the problem is is we don't. You know, it, yeah. it takes it, it's the four letter word there. It takes work. Okay, yeah. to actually figure that out. But we have lots of good resources where we can do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, one of the one of the concerns people have with that kind of scholarship, and and, and I don't think it needs to be a concern. And I think there's a, a couple of answers to it, but you know, when people depend upon um, you know, ancient Near Eastern or Second Temple Jewish studies for interpreting scripture, there's this kind of concern that we're sort of reducing the Bible to something that's in the possession of the mm-hmm. experts or something like that. And, and, and there's a, there's a co-concern that we, oh, um,
1: absolutely,
0: there, and there's a co-concern yeah. that we, uh, uh, that uh, uh, in as much as sort of ancient near Eastern thought, you know, had technical errors that then we're sort of putting errors in the mouth of God. And it, and it seems to me, first of all, one thing to say is just like, but if God, <laughs> Uh, the phenomenon of scripture needs to guide our doctrine of inspiration. If God, in fact, inspired scripture, who, yeah, who figured- Wait,
1: Stop, stop right there. What you're suggesting is that our definition of inspiration needs to conform to the Bible.
0: Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's know, the fact.
1: I'm shocked and dismayed. If these
0: scriptures are, yeah, if these particular view, pieces of scholarship are illuminating- uh, then, you know, that's God's fault, because he, <laughs> you know, because that's, a, you know, that's what he, right, exactly. now, it's, not that, it's not, of course, right, that, um, because even though we might have a bigger pile of scholarship, most of in the history of the Christian church, which might have been cut off from a certain pile of scholarship, nevertheless, for most of the history of the Christian church, people have still had what you call a supernatural worldview. Yeah. And so they you know, is would... still useful
1: it would be easy to sit here as the guy with the PhD and blame pastors for this knowledge gap. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to blame scholars. Mm. Okay. This, the, the comment you made earlier about, it creates the impression that, that all this Bible, ancient near Eastern second temple stuff, this is the domain of scholars and, and, and the people in the pew are just, you know, the riffraff and, you know, Hey, you know, a lot of scholars, A, think that way, and B, even if they don't think that way, they do not produce content for people in the local church. And I honestly, I think that's a sin. I think that is a sin for a scholar to do. You know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take peer-reviewed scholarship and make it in some way decipherable to anybody who cares.
0: This is, there are 20, there's a $20,000 worth of books for $12 right here. That's literally <laughs> what this, I tell people that like, you can't imagine if I actually told you in the, in the bibliography of this volume, how much money you'd have to spend on books to collect this information. Uh, it, it, would be, it would be a big number, but here it is for, you know. That, uh, if, a if, I have a,
1: if I have a grand, you know, sinister plan, that, that's it, right there. I mean, I, <laughs> I, and, you know, I'll use the word sinister because I, again, I'm not gonna out anybody here, but I have been told at conferences, like when I worked, I worked for Logos for 14 years, okay? And, and Logos was not trying to make software, Bible software just for the scholar. Our thing was, we, we wanna, even if it's something crazy, like a syntactical Hebrew database, The person who doesn't even know the alphabet should get some value out of that. How do we do that? Okay. Right. So we're, we're, we looked at ourselves as arms dealers Hmm. in the office. This is the metaphor we used Hmm. arms dealers. Okay. And, And we would go out to conferences and I'm not, I am not kidding. We would get berated by scholars for putting tools, you know, high scholarship, you know, stuff into the hands of people that don't know what they're doing with it. You're just, you're making bad Bible interpretation possible, you know, and, and, and our, and I'm, I'm like, you mean that's not possible now? (laughs) Like, look, look, bad Bible interpretation is just going to happen, right? Okay. It's, it's the third sure thing in life besides death and taxes. Okay. It's just (laughs) going to happen. But if you, if you give people access to content, our hope is that it'll raise the bar a little bit. Yes. And and if scholars, God forbid, if scholars yeah. tried to take their content and make it decipherable for the normal person, <laughs> I'll bet that would have a good impact, wouldn't
2: it? Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, and I mean, I,
1: I, there were there were just years I was not popular at ETS and SBL because I, I don't know when I crossed the point, but I, I crossed it somewhere that I, I'm I'm just. I'm really tired of this because to me it it felt terrible when I was writing what would become Unseen Realm. I can remember distinctly sitting in Memorial Library at the University of Wisconsin. And there I am. I'm a doctoral student with two master's degrees. I'm in in a a respected Hebrew studies department and I am rediscovering my Bible all over again. Mm. And the thought hit me 99% of people in church who who loves Scripture will never be able to do this. They'll never have the experience. Yeah, mm. and it it just felt criminal. Yeah, and, and that was the moment that unseen realm was born in my head. Okay, mm. I'll bet I'll bet that I can do that. I'll, I'll bet I can take all this, you know, lofty stuff the way scholars talk about the Bible,
0: mm.
1: and somehow make that decipherable to anybody who cares yeah. anybody who cares so the yeah. goal is never you have to agree with mike the goal is that you rediscover your bible mm. okay you read it again for the first time because this happened to me okay this is personal to me yeah you yeah. know it's like where i'm not like this elite person and oh you better listen to me because i got it right no i want you to see for yourself yeah what's going on here and what the options are and discover it
2: yeah god bless you for that brother because i mean i i um as i started to get into seminary and sort of the academic uh, academic world uh with its literature and the commentaries and the word studies and just everything that goes into it (laughs) what has uh, happened to me (laughs) right right you start to say to yourself like you, well, first, uh, maybe this is a personality quirk, but at first you take on a sort of elitist position, like actually nobody knows anything except for me, uh, because I've done all the relevant work, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but then you, I think, as you mature, if as the Lord matures you, you realize that Sa- Mrs. Smith, who's 89 years old, yeah. that sits next to you every day on Sunday to worship Jesus. Uh, Like, what does this all really mean to her, right? And um, so that's why I appreciate your work. And especially with demons, you can feel that you're laboring to be thoroughly exegetical and thoroughly interactive uh, with the relevant texts to just say, guys, we're supernaturalists. And this is just, uh, this is an okay way to think about the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is very different than other uh, books. And and you could tell there's the pub- there's the marketing department that got behind everything and sort of put the cover together and, and the well the, the, the title the
1: title is a marketing concession. Right, right. You know, we put demons in the title because that, you know, oh, wow, I don't right. know what it's about, but I'm going to buy it because it's demons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, but, but if the subtitle is what the Bible really says about the powers, powers of, darkness. of
0: darkness, that's right. right. Because right. not
1: all the powers of darkness are demons.
0: Yeah, right. I remember reading you know? the title and thinking, this doesn't sound very Michael Heiser-ish. That's not like <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's that's. We tried. (laughs) It actually, it's interesting to, you know, speaking about that 89-year-old woman, you know, how does, how does, you know, grasping for you the spiritual dimension of scripture animate uh, a notion of Christian mission? Um, you know, in America, you know, there's so much going on in churches. We're all fighting political and culture okay. wars, and such. And 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 you know, you know, and in some cases, people sort of interpret those spiritually or or not spiritually or whatever. We've just been through an election, so demons have mostly become used uh, 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 invoked in the recent uh, in the recent days to refer to Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but how do you, how do you? you know, what has your, your understanding of the spiritual dimension of scripture, how, has, has it helped you kind of rethink the priorities of the church relative to kind of its American context and its sense of like what the priorities of the church ought to be?
1: Yeah, I, I it, ha, it has helped me view the church more globally. Um, and, you know, Boy, there's so many ways I could answer this question. I, I, I will say it this way. Nothing has convinced me. This is going to sound really weird, but it's coming from me. So <laughs> right. Right. why you're here. <laughs> right, while I'm here, I might as well say something weird. Um, nothing has convinced me more of the coherence of the Great Commission than studying all this demonology stuff. Yes. And, and here's why. Because I I, I can and this is in the demons book, but I after I noticed that Paul in five or six different passages connected the demise of the principalities and the rulers and the authorities, okay, who are not demons per se. I mean that again that we talk about that in the book, but he specifically linked their the nullification of their authority, which goes right. back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview with the ascension. Okay, that little factoid, one, once I, I latched onto that, plus he, his mission, his part of that was to, to bring the Gentile, you know, take the gospel of the Gentiles, the disinherited nations, the nations disinherited at Babel, and bring them back into the family because the, the, the time of their estrangement was over. Okay, the exile for them is over. He links... That, he calls it the fullness of the Gentiles, okay? And he links that with the awakening of Israel, and then the end comes, the day of the Lord, and you know the Lord returns, and we, we have the, the new earth and new heaven. So it, it all of these things are linked together. So when I get questions, and I love it when, I get, when I'm on a charismatic show, and they ask me about spiritual warfare. Right. Because I'll say something like, you know what spiritual warfare is? It's getting off your butt and doing the Great Commission. Hmm. Because all these things are linked. Ask yourself the question in reverse. What do the supernatural powers fear? Mm. Okay. They don't feel your bass. They don't fear your bass guitar. Okay. They don't fear you going (laughs) into a house and shouting prayers of renunciation at them. Okay. They don't fear this stuff. What they fear is their own destruction. Yeah. Okay. That's the only thing they need to fear. And right now they're working a pretty good plan because they can look at God and say, Oh, that, you know, silly Yahweh, you know, he, he linked the second coming and the day of the Lord and our destruction of the great commission. So all we've got to do is distract the church. All we've got to do is prevent the great commission from, you know, that can getting kicked down the road and we're going to be here a long time. Right. Okay. Right. And, and, and so this is what they fear. If, if the church was less distracted, if the church actually did its job. Okay, that is the thing that is spiritual warfare. So that those two things have clarified that in my head a lot. Mm. And, you know, again, there, when I look at, at, you know, especially now, you know, it's after the election and all this stuff, you know, what, you know, why is why is the Spirit of God like not active anymore? You know, why, you know, don't we see what we've seen in the book of Acts? You know, I was praying for this or that. It's like, look, first of all, yes, the church in the West is in deep trouble.
2: Hmm.
1: We get it. It's, I think, partly it's in deep trouble because you have killed it, church Okay, I think we need again this little bit of reenchantment here. We need to start to believe that there's a reality beyond the one we see. Like, really believe it, not believe it, you know, like like for two thousand years ago on the cross, but like believe it now. Mm. Okay, so that that would help. But but the church is not America. Okay, the church is underground in Asia and it's flourishing. Yeah, mm. you got crazy stuff going on in Muslim countries. You know, so much so that I mean, I just read it, read a book about, you know, this weird stuff happening in Islamic countries where there are no Bibles, you know, because if you're caught with the Bible, you, you basically are dead. Okay, but like, you know, Jesus showing up to people in dreams and 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 people coming to the Lord and starting churches. And yes, they they are put to death sometimes, but but they're doing it. And it's 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 to the point now where this one mission agency that I was reading about made billboards that said if you've seen this man in your dreams it's a picture of Jesus call this number (laughs) I mean you gotta you gotta get far down the road yeah for that to be effective and it's not like you 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 go to sleep a Muslim and you wake up a Christian okay it's not that it's that oh hundreds and thousands of these stories were people who don't have scripture again it sounds suspiciously like the first century to me so that that perks up my ears right away yeah so god is doing stuff to to get people to go and meet other christians and, and so they can give them the gospel and then they become believers we know who that was in your dream let me tell you about it you know it, it's not this existential you know weird crazy stuff it's it's stuff that happened in in the pages of scripture i mean <laughs>
0: Yeah. Right. There it is.
1: But, but, yeah. but where the church is oppressed, it's flourishing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause,
1: cause honestly, you got no other choice, you know? So I, I look at the election and yeah, I, I'm not a fan of tyranny. I like things like <laughs> the bill of rights and I don't want to see them go away. Sure. Okay. So I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not thrilled with a whole host of things going on, but, but I have come to the point now where I, I feel, you know, got to be honest lord I, i'm not i don't have my hand in the air saying please please god bring on the persecution but i have come to the point where i do not believe that the church will voluntarily change
2: hmm.
1: i think it must be forced to change yeah the church is in the west is is so worldly it's it's just it so much is done for personal gain and to hear the the beauty of the sound of your own voice you know, to 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 get audiences, you know, mm-hmm. numbers, all this stuff. Okay, it has to end. Mm. And and the only thing that's going to separate the you know, pardon the expression, but the men from the boys, okay. <laughs> and the only thing that that that's going to to force this kind of change is when things don't go our way. Mm. Okay, yeah. so so I don't know if I'm if I'm still willing to say if it's that it's a good thing that we're descending into tyranny and madness, but it probably, I'd probably use the word productive. I think it's a productive thing.
2: Yeah. Do you think Um, that, um, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, Joe and I were talking uh, before you joined us, Dr. Heiser. And um, I think that one of the reasons modernity has done a lot to sort of curb the supernatural understanding of uh, not only how we read our Bible, but how we interpret reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of Joe's, part of, Joe wrote a book, uh, when was that? Two years ago, maybe three, Divine Absence. Yeah, Enduring Divine Absence, yeah. Uh, um, That was sort of like a light bulb moment for me. And one of the things that he's sort of getting at is, in the modern age, there's no relying on we don't have to rely on the sun god for tomatoes to grow right (laughs) um we can just go down to the supermarket um, our our life is largely. Oh, I sh-
1: noticed Amazon using Sun God image. Really.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, that would be a this, those Sun are God the, has just changed. <laughs> it's just
0: incarnated himself. Right. Well, th- th-
2: those are the Archons messaging once again. Right. But, <laughs> uh, but I do think that there is a link in with the modern way of interpreting the world because of the conveniences that uh, the conveniences that. Uh, modernity is given to us Mm -hmm. to where supernaturalism uh, um, is no longer a viable crutch um, to sort of help us in moments of despair. Uh, Because as you said earlier, you know, I can just pop a pill when I don't feel good or um, any number of other things. I can access pornography on my phone, or I can, you know, do, do a variety of instant sort of superficial psychological um, copes that help me deal with the ickiness that I feel about are, reality. Are,
1: are you saying it's not wonderful to be the answer to all your own problems?
2: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know,
1: because that, yes. that's where we've come.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, That's that's sort of what I, yeah, what my book was sort of arguing is that a lot of it does have to do with dependencies. It's like there's a weird, once you sort of remove, in a superficial way, of course, we are still yeah. as dependent as human beings have ever been, but the superficial sense is that you're uh, that you're not responding to the, the elements of the world, kind of insisting themselves upon you, which mm-hmm. sort of reinforces the agentic dimension of reality. And once you kind of suspend that agentic dimension, it's not that it goes away; it's that you start to think that everything is sort of raw material that my activity is relating to, mm-hmm. uh, and. And in some ways, that's just that's just living in a bubble, right? Yeah, I
1: I, I think I think the, the toilet paper shortage probably should have disabused most people of that. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> I, seriously, because yes. what what I would hope that people realize. You know, I was just on an interview a week ago, and I and I, I said to somebody, I don't know what it was or why, what was even the discussion, but I said, as as technology becomes more human. We will become less human. Yeah, I think that is a truism. Yep, and and th- that's what's happening to us. We that part w- was really about the absence of community. You know that, that we don't mm. we don't have this interdependence anymore because of technology. But on a personal level, we're we're just as vulnerable, or even more, because I, I would hope that people look at you know the the whole you know some of the stuff that's happened in the wake of COVID and realize how fragile this whole thing is because if your economy is a is a globally distributed economy yeah. which means most of the stuff you use isn't manufactured in one place right okay if that widget breaks you know you might you might wait weeks or months you know in in, in a certain scenario to ever see that the thing that that produces again yeah and and you're more vulnerable as a modern because you don't know how to replace it yourself and you've cut yourself off from people who do.
2: Yeah. So do you think that that's part of the strategy of the powers of darkness um, is sort of manifest in the development of technology for the destruction of humanity? Um, I, th- th- I
1: think it's, I, I, the, the destruction of humanity is the side of the coin that's not facing you. Hmm. Okay, the side of the coin that's facing you is the exaltation of humanity to be as gods. Hmm. You know, what what I think, what I think technology and tech, really, let's use the words like technopoly, okay, or technocracy. What I think this is about is reversing Babel and restoring Eden without God. I think in one sentence, that's it.
0: Yep, and
1: we this have convinced is Lewis, ourselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we right. have convinced ourselves that that is achievable, and and that it's worth achieving.
0: Yeah, yeah. This that, is uh, that hideous strength. I think is sort of that's that's sort of the narrative. Lewis is painting is yeah. this modern kind of technocratic, which interestingly is between political parties for Lewis. That's a crucial point for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this sort of behind both parties entity that's. Uh, sort of and, a technocr-
1: we, we need, we need to wake up to that too, because look, it's easy to, it's easy to look at the left and say, well, the end, the end game here is, is a soft tyranny with socialism. Yeah. Okay, that, that's not the end game. Okay. The end game is corporatocracy, technocracy,
0: mm-hmm. yep.
1: because these are the power players behind the, the they're going to be the puppet masters of our political figures. We can already see how that's possible now. Yeah. Just with, just with the you know big tech and the tech giants and social media, that is really going to be the end game. So they'll they'll prop up people to pretend that we have, uh, you know, a Republican democracy or a democratic republic, you know, whichever you prefer. It, it it's going to look like it like it's this thing that's always been here, but it ain't that anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, as we uh, move toward a conclusion. Uh, One last thing that I'd love to, to just to touch upon before we go is one of the things in your work that I have just found so useful, because there's not a lot of people that do this, is that you're not just sort of connecting the dots between Old Testament and New Testament studies. You know, there's a lot of work doing that, but you're also trying to connect the dots between sort of this whole smorgasbord of ancient Near Eastern studies and second temple studies. Uh, and there, you know, again, usually people sort of have their, their feet in one of those worlds rather than both. Maybe there's a plenty of exceptions, but a lot of people, they sort of know one field of things. Um, but a third, maybe a third leg that I'd be interested in the development of scholarship, uh, and I mentioned this to you when we chatted briefly in the hall at ETS, uh. uh is to see that that sort of that sort of ancient Near Eastern to Second Temple Judaism, but then to see all those threads as they're developed in the early church. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you're aware of, you know, are there people developing? I mean, on the one hand, there's there's people developing this stuff with um, certainly with the doctrine of Christ. You know, you've done a a lot of work on Mm -hmm. sort of Jesus in the Old Testament to the New Testament. And there's excuse me, a lot of people doing work between sort of the New Testament and how does the early church pick up all of these motifs and play with these Christological categories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you aware of anybody that does this with demonology? Because one of the interesting things is that one of the only, uh, this book right here uh, by Carl O'Brien, you know, the demiurge in ancient thought mm-hmm. is mostly about sort of weird mediating figures from Plato to Neoplatinus mm-hmm. in the kind of philosophical world threading sort of almost the ancient near east to the moder- to 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 sort of late antiquity is sort of a way to just think about the history of philosophy but in the theological world i don't see a lot of people doing sort of here's the here's spiritual entities in the old testament and the new testament and here's how they all morph in the early here's how the conversation changes yeah
1: there there really isn't a lot of it i mean the, honestly the the closest you get to it would be edited volumes on one topic that that intentionally go from ancient Near East, you know, into the early church period. But, but for, as far as one person, yeah, I, man, I, the the only thing that, that pops into my head that would be like that from the product, product of one person is, and I, I'll, I'll tell you the title, but I'm, there's a caveat with this book too, but I don't think it, it ruins it. I, not in any way but you just have to be aware of it. And that is the book when souls had wings. Hmm. Okay. It's the author's last name is Givens G I G I V E N S. he's a Mormon. I think he's a professor of literature or something like that, but he trade it's the bo- whole book is, is on the, it's an intellectual history of the idea of pre-existence. Huh. And he does go from the ancient near East all the way to modernity on this. And he has, he's got two or three chapters on, on, uh, early church, I think two of them are, are, are actually focused on Augustine. I think he gets two chapters, but it, it's actually really fascinating. Um, I, he, he starts out with divine counsel stuff. And I, I don't, I, I'll characterize it this way. There's a passage in Job that you could read and, and use to prop up the idea of pre the pre-existence of the soul. Okay. Mm. And again, you guys know, this is not reincarnation or transmigration right. of the soul. This is just pre-existence. Right. Um, I, I don't think that the passage needs to be read that way. It, it can certainly be read other ways, but, but at, ver- at the very least, he sees it, and then he, you know, he traces that through New Testament stuff and early church. And it's just fascinating when it comes to to Augustine, how Augustine preexistence was linked to, you know, the 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 issue of Adam it's linked to, you know, predestination, it's linked to depravity. I mean, there, it, it's one of these, these things are all linked together. And, and because Augustine was a, a bit all over the map, all over the spectrum on pre-existence, his view on these other things tends, tends to shift. And so where he actually lands, you know, Gibbons' point is, he, he basically lands where he does, because it's the best response he has to certain things Going on at the time that he thought were the most crucial, you know, things to address. Yeah. So, but, but just to see this kind of working out in in Augustine's head is to to me was worth the whole book, but that's an unusual book. I mean, there, there aren't many things like that. Usually you get them in, in edited volumes. It, It, and I think this is hurting us, you know, to, to not have this continuity. I'll give you one example. You know, if it makes me cringe, you know, when, when I hear people like Bart Ehrman, and other New Testament scholars talk about the recency of the idea of the deity of Christ. It's like, Bart, just move back 200 years, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. move back into the second temple period, okay, because you've got the whole discussion of binatarian monotheism going on in the Jewish community. I mean, all of that is precedent for high Christology, it's like he's you right. know, like in debates it's like he doesn't he get the impression he doesn't even know it exists. Sure. And then and right. then that stuff you know is is itself derivative you know from certain things in the ancient near east like a like a trinity. The idea that that the gods or a god could be in existence as more than one person simultaneously is not a christian invention. Right. Okay right. these things have long histories. And right. so I I wish that there, there was somebody that would do a ancient Near East, you know, to early church treatment of, of you know, more than one per, whatever the word you know, for that is, you know, this this uh, this this idea, you know, just tracing that one thread. Because I think that would actually help. It gives a systematic theologian, if he's aware of of how the ideas were expressed, you know, in other places, it might give the systematic and the philosophical theologian. Uh, a different maybe a few different choices in vocabulary or, or illustration right you know to right. to to articulate what's going on here
0: yeah and the the other side of that then is is that uh just as the new testament isn't merely a second temple thought is in continuity but not merely a regurgitation of ancient no. near eastern thought right though the early church development sort of on the way to nicaea it's not that you just sort of jump out of revelation and you're right in, yeah, right, there's a right, whole right. De- the 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 one I think who's done and I, I hold these up for my audience the one I think who's done the best work on this he's only published one version so far is uh, Crispin Fletcher Lewis's yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesus Monotheism sort of you know gets into kind of what are the sort of and I, you've done work like this as well da- again,
1: David play. Capes is another good one and and Capes uh, is the guy who who had a book on let me let me get the title so I don't mess it up because he actually produced a popular volume. So I, he, he deserves some, some oh, sure. your, That's great. kudos here. Now, this is reprinted in the Baylor series, Old Testament Yahweh texts in Paul's Christology. Okay. And so mm. it, it's basically how Paul will quote the Old Testament. And where Yahweh is the object or the subject of something, Jesus gets moved into those slots when Paul quotes these passages. Right. Yes. So in, in a, it's a way of telegraphing the identification of Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. Right. Now, his... He, he wrote a, a popular version of this called The Divine Christ. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is um, Paul, the Lord Jesus, and the Scriptures of Israel. So here's an example of a scholar, you know, taking his work and making it digestible. I, I look for these people, you know, because I, I just think that that's important. But, but he's going to be able to track. He's another one like Fletcher Louie who's very conversant with the literature of the second temple period he's a trinitarian you know he's he's in the evangelical tradition he, he's going to know you know he's he's going to smell the the internet bs when it comes to <laughs> trinity stuff a mile away right okay right. That, about how this is recent and it was invented at nicaea it's like if you say that you are just waving a flag that says i'm ignorant of primary texts that that that's what's on your flag mm. yeah. so I think these these guys are important, you know, for the for pastors to know about get their books and and mine them, you know. It, yeah. You know, well, Dr.
0: Well, uh, Heiser, it uh, looks like we're we're at time here. Thank you so much for for yes. joining us today. This is just it's uh, it's it's great to hear hear your work again. Um, maybe maybe very very quickly, I think uh, the un, uh, would you say if people want to sort of get the big picture of what you're doing. I'm thinking the Unseen Realm would probably be the place to start. If,
1: if if you are accustomed to reading books with footnotes, read Unseen Realm, okay? I had a good editor, so it's very readable. I mean, I've got 2,500 reviews on Amazon, and and those aren't scholars. I mean, it's been reviewed in journals and stuff like that just fine. Um, but most of those people are lay people, you know, mm-hmm. pastors and lay people. So it, it it's readable. But if you don't like books with footnotes, and like academic discussion gets supernatural supernatural Hmm. is is a distillation of the content points of unseen realm okay
2: yeah and we'll just link that in uh the youtube page and on the show notes page so dr heiser thank you so much brother we really appreciate it it's been an illuminating conversation and Mm -hmm. we look forward to seeing more of your work Um, Mm -hmm. so keep it up keep going we're rooting yeah. for you.
1: Well, we, we try to be
2: useful. <laughs> yes. All right, everyone. Well, until next time, you can find us on Facebook and, of course, the Davenet Institute uh, YouTube page. Will uh, this will be published? Uh, please give us a like and uh, share the episode if you find it interesting. Uh, but until then, Joe, brother, I love you. Love you too, and, man. And we will see you all next time.
0: See ya.